welcome to Podshipper. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. to being exhausted. The last four years has taken a massive psychological and emotional toll that I'm only now just beginning to appreciate. Truthfully, the struggle to keep hope that this day would arrive often eluded me. The good news is that we now have the opportunity to reignite democracy, civility, truth, and move towards healing both our country and the earth. We've gone so far backwards that we need to move forward with deliberate, tangible, and bold steps. One of the voices calling for such a revolution in our thinking and action is Dr. Mark Hyman. Mark is a systems thinker, and for Dr. Hyman, health is about connecting the soil with the farmer, with the grocer, with our diet. And only when we connect all those dots can we begin to achieve planetary regeneration. As we'll hear in today's podcast, what is truly staggering is the cost of today's broken food system in which 60% of our calories in the U.S. come in the form of ultra-processed food. Dr. Mark Hyman is the head of strategy and innovation of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. He's the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center and the board president of the Clinical Affairs for the Institute of Functional Medicine. Mark hosts one of the leading health podcasts, The Doctor's Pharmacy, spelled F-A-R, A-C-Y, Farm Assy. Mark is a 13-time New York bestseller author. His most recent book is called Food Fix, How to Save Our Health, Our Economy, Our Communities, and Our Planet, One Bite at a Time. I start by asking Mark how he got into medicine in the first place. Being a doctor was a total afterthought for me. Uh, I was a, a Buddhist student in college. I studied Buddhism, Asian studies, Chinese. Uh, I studied uh, ecology, the environment, systems thinking, ancient systems of healing. You know, it was very eclectic. And I decided after I graduated, well, what am I going to do with a degree in Buddhism? (laughs) So I took a long hike by myself in the Shenandoah Valley, threw my backpack, brought a copy of Moby Dick, because it was a very thick book that I could carry and read. That was before Kindle. And uh, I just walked and thought and just kind of thought about what I wanted to do. And, you know, the Buddhist framework is really about healing. It's a, it's a healing system. It's not really a religion. It's really a system of healing of the mind. And it's about the relief of suffering. It's about compassion and love and service. And, and those were things that really called to me as a young man. And and I thought, well, you know, what could I do that kind of fits all that? I could be a monk. Uh, that didn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> but I decided uh, I could be a doctor. And it was a total afterthought. I, just, I didn't have any of the science courses. I had to go back and take some pre-med courses and ended up loving it. And I decided I would just keep doing it as long as I liked it. And if I didn't like it anymore, I would stop. And so far, so good, uh, 30 years later. <laughs> I mean, that's great advice for anyone thinking about People who ask me career advice, I say that, like, if you enjoy it, if it really fulfills you, keep doing it. And if it doesn't, maybe think about stopping it. 
Exactly. Exactly. Or change. I've changed so many things. I've been, you know, a small town country doctor in Idaho on a Native American reservation. I've been an emergency room doctor. I started clinics in China for expatriates. I was the medical director of Canyon Ranch. I developed my own practice. I started writing books and teaching uh, about functional medicine and became uh, the faculty of the Functional Medicine Institute and direct and the chairman of it. Started a big uh, uh, Center for Functional Medicine at Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, now I'm sort of moving into a different phase of thinking about how do we deal with the intersecting issues of food and health and agriculture and environment, which all may seem separate, but are actually all one problem. And if we want to solve one, we have to solve them all. So before we get into that, what is functional medicine? What does that, what uh, does that mean? Well I, <laughs> well, I joke, it's the opposite of dysfunctional medicine, which is what we have now. It's essentially a system of thinking. It's not a methodology or a treatment or a test or a supplement. It's, it's essentially a way of thinking about disease based on systems. It's, it's basically ecosystem medicine. You understand that that the environment is an ecosystem and that everything has to be in balance in nature for it to thrive. And in medicine, we really created a reductionist model that allows us to focus on diseases and symptoms and drugs to target those symptoms and not really understand what is health. We never took the course in medical school, creating a healthy human 101. <laughs> you know, we, we basically learn how to diagnose and treat diseases. Functional medicine is the science of creating health. And when you do that, disease goes away as a side effect. If you create a healthy ecosystem, for example, on a farm or in a, in a natural ecosystem, it becomes resilient. Disease doesn't occur. It's a robust system that can handle insults and stresses and traumas. And regenerative agriculture is very much like that, where you know we, we see a resiliency in natural systems. And that's really what functional medicine is, is how do we do that? Uh, and it's really very simple, actually. It ends up being um, as simple as understanding what are those things that disturb the balance in your system. And there's a short list, right? It's toxins, allergens, microbes, stress, poor diet, interacting with your genes and your lifestyle, right? Your diet, exercise, sleep, relationships, community connection, meaning, purpose, and how those influence these biological systems in your body. Because uh, our body is a network of networks. And they have to be in balance for us to be healthy. And, and I think we can't escape the fact that we are biological organisms and we are part of a greater natural ecosystem. And when we live outside of that, that's when, when disease occurs. Which is a big, big shift in how we think about health and medicine. Why are we so resistant to reframing it as a system rather than a symptom? What, what is it about how we are as humans that don't let us get to the place where we understand it from a functional perspective. Thomas Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions and why they're so difficult. He's the guy that coined the term paradigm shift and why they're so hard. And I mean, there are still people who believe the earth is flat. There are still people who say evolution is just a quote theory. Uh, and so I think we, 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 we talk in 150 years after Darwin, we're still arguing about this. Uh, and in medicine, we've developed this model based on a phenomenological approach. We basically observe what is in front of us. Someone comes in with a head pain, we go to the head doctor. They come in with a joint pain, we go to the joint doctor. They come in with diabetes and we go to the endocrinologist. But it turns out that that may be an overly simplistic reductionist view. When you start to pull back, the paradigm is blowing up. And I'll just give you a quick example of, of how it's blowing up. The microbiome is essentially that ecosystem of bugs that lives in us and on us, mostly in us. 
And when it's out of balance, we get sick. And much of modern Western disease has been linked to this. Everything from heart disease to cancer to diabetes to autoimmune disease to autism to Alzheimer's. You know, and the list goes on and on and on. And they're doing fecal transplants on kids with autism and seeing their autistic symptoms get better and stay better for two years. How does that make any sense, given our paradigm, right? So that's the way in which we need to reframe our thinking based on systems biology and systems thinking. And it's it's something that exists in every other enterprise. We're practicing 19th century medicine in the 21st century. We have more tools and techniques and drugs and fancy bells and whistles and are better at diagnosing and better at treating the symptoms. But we really miss the fundamental fact that in order to really deal with this chronic disease pandemic, which is meeting the COVID pandemic, which is creating an incredible storm of disease, that we have to shift our view from this reductionist view to the systems view and, and understand the science of creating health. People listening and listening to your podcast, how do you encourage them to take those first steps towards making a paradigm shift in their own way of thinking about health away from a reductionist view towards a more functional view? Like, what does that look like? Well, I, I often joke that often people don't want to change um, because they have NEP syndrome. And NEP syndrome stands for not enough pain. <laughs> so when you're in a pain, you're going to start to seek out other solutions. And I can't tell you how many doctors and doctors' families and healthcare providers and scientists are patients because they hit that wall and it doesn't work and they're in pain and they come to try this different approach. But I, I really hope for people that they don't wait until they have something serious before they change. Because especially now in this time of COVID-19, the reason we're seeing America having such skyrocketing cases is not only because of poor governmental decisions around containing the pandemic. It's because we have an underlying health, unhealthy population. And for example, in China, there are three deaths per million population. Here, there are 500 deaths per million population. Well, in China, there's only 2.6% obesity rate. Here, it's 42% obesity rate, and 88% are metabolically unhealthy. So when you have the pandemic of chronic disease, which is poor metabolic health, obesity, and it's driven by inflammation in the body, meaning the pandemic of COVID-19, it creates a firestorm, literally that accelerates the impact of the virus on our population, which is why we have more deaths and more hospitalizations and more severe cases. So those numbers around obesity, you would think in the years leading up to that number getting kind of so out of control, it would it would be on the front page of every newspaper. How did we get there? It's the untold story. Mm -hmm. no, one, no one wants to focus. Yeah, this is the biggest uh, question of our time, which is why are we not talking about this? Why is this not on the headline news? Why is it absent from political discourse? It's the central problem of our time, which is our food system, the way it grows food, which damages the environment and climate, and the food which it grows, which damages human health. And uh, in, when I was born, 1959, there was 5% obesity. Now there's 42%. That's an 800% increase in obesity. That's insane. And it kind of went up slowly until 1980. In 1980, when we decided to tell everybody to eat more carbs and and starch, right? Six to 11 servings of bread, rice, cereal, and pasta, according to the food pyramid, it's when there was a hockey stick increase in the rates of diabetes and obesity in America. And what happened was the industrialization of our food system led to this, this crisis we're having now, which was for good intentions. We wanted to produce abundant calories for a hungry world. 
We wanted to adapt our agriculture system to modern methods that could accelerate crop production, increase yields, scale it up very fast. And that was seemed to be a good thing. But it was in a time of innocence when we didn't know until Rachel Carson that pesticides were bad. We didn't know that the way we tilled the soil destroyed the soil and released all the carbon into the atmosphere that's driving climate change. I mean, probably a third to a half of all climate change is related to the way we grow food. We didn't know that growing a lot of abundant starchy calories was not a good idea because it was driving obesity and diabetes. So we had this sort of perfect storm of events around industrial agriculture, the commercialization of food, the increase in the fast food movement. I don't know if it's a movement. It was more of a disaster. <laughs> the, the increase in, in highly processed, ultra-processed food, which is staggering. I mean, just in the African-American community, in the 1960s, they were far healthier than white communities because they still cooked their traditional foods and they were thin and healthy. And, and now African-Americans are, are the epitome of poor health in this country because of the structural racism in our food system, the targeting of these communities, the food deserts and food swamps and food apartheid that's affecting these communities. It's why we see, for example, in communities like Chicago and Louisiana, where there's 30% African-American population, it's 70% of the COVID deaths. So we really, we really created this massive shift in our food system, our food supply from seed to fork. And that has really disrupted human health, environmental health, and climate health. And this is the central issue of our time, that if we don't deal with is an existential crisis for humanity. So Mark, as a doctor, what impact are these foods that are being kind of forced upon us, as you're describing it, in, in this very large corporate industrial food system like what's the individual impact and then what's the collective cost because it, it's enormous just in terms of raw staggering dollars staggering you know uh, we now have 60 percent of our calories in america as ultra processed food which are basically from commodity crops corn wheat and soy primarily that are turned into all manner of color size shapes and tastes of extruded food-like substances that bear little resemblance to their original form of corn, wheat, or soy. I mean, if you ate a soybean or a corn on the cob, or you had a whole wheat berry, that's okay. <laughs> but that's not how we eat them. And, and we know that, that for every 10% of your diet that consists of these foods, your risk of death goes up by 14%. We know that globally, over 11 million people die every year from poor diet as the number one killer on the planet. More than anything else, smoking and So say that again. And what, I think the number one killer is what, Mark? That's incredible. Food, poor diet, poor, not enough good foods and too much bad foods. Uh, sugar, starches, ultra-processed food. It's staggering. And the costs are staggering. You know, in America alone, you know, we have one-third of our federal budget is for chronic disease primarily caused by food. Soon it's going to be 50%, 75% and more. By 2042, it's estimated that it might be 100% of our federal discretionary spending, which is staggering. I mean, to it's me. staggering and that it's yeah. 30, Mark. Let's just stop there. I mean, it would be ridiculous yeah. if it was 100%, but a third of all federal discretionary funding goes to fight the causes of obesity or the yeah. symptoms of obesity. Yeah. So we're talking about Medicare for all. We're talking about public option. We're talking about you know, increased access and all this. I'm like, that is the wrong conversation. Yes, healthcare is a human right. Yes, we should all have healthcare. But if we all of a sudden open the floodgates and 
you know, we don't deal with the, the reason why people are getting in the system in the first place, we're in trouble. So we have to create a healthy America. And the only way to reduce healthcare costs long-term is by improving the health of the American population. And it has to start with our food and our food system. So why does no one give a shit about this? It's, I mean, like, if I told you anything, you could save a third of the discretionary federal budget by doing anything. Like, people would be talking about it. But, like, progressive Democrats, yeah. I didn't hear Bernie Sanders talking about it. I mean, you hear a lot about, no, a lot of finger-wagging about Medicaid for all, but nothing about how to make us healthier. Why, why aren't we talking about it? For me, as a doctor sitting in my office, seeing patient after patient for 30 years, uh, realizing that most of their problems are caused by food, I realized at one point that I was swimming upstream, that I could not cure diabetes in my office. It was cured on the farm, it was cured in the grocery store and in the kitchen. And if I didn't pay attention to the larger food ecosystem and understand why they were eating what they were eating and fix that, I couldn't really help my patients. And so when I had that revelation, I think it was clear to me that most people don't connect the dots. And I've spoken to legislator after legislator, senators, congressmen, and they're good people for the most part, and they want to do the right thing for the most part. But the level of education about the intersection of all these issues, health, healthcare, the economy, climate change, environment, social justice issues, academic performance, national security, they don't connect the dots. And I literally sat with a very prominent Democratic senator on a sailboat for two hours last summer, and I had him captain. <laughs> and I just downloaded, you know, the intersection of all these areas that food is the nexus that where they all come together. And his jaw was open and he he just didn't know. And we've been, you know, making the rounds, Republicans, Democrats, congressmen, senators, and it's just staggering how little awareness there is about the intersection of these issues and how little awareness there is of the actual solutions. We don't need any new scientific discoveries. We don't need any more knowledge to solve this. We have most of what we need to solve the problem. We just don't connect the dots. And is one of the reasons that we don't connect the dots, reading your recent book, Food Fix, you got the whole second part is on the dirty politics of big food. Oh boy, yes. So here's the problem. We don't really have a free market economy. If we did, then the costs of doing business would be borne in the price of the goods we pay. So the government has really not held to account industry for the, we call them the externalities, but they're not really externalities. I, I don't like calling side effects of drugs side effects. They're not, they're not side effects. They're the effects we don't like. I love that. Yeah, that's so true. We're in a situation where the food industry has really taken over the government. It's the number one lobby group of all industry, the agribusiness and food industry, by double any other industry. So just one bill, one year in 2015 was the labeling act for GMO foods. Now, every country pretty much in the world, including Russia and China, <laughs> labeled GMO. Okay. And I think they're not known for, you know, their transparency, open right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and the food industry spent 192 million dollars on one bill in one year right 
there is no lobby group for the good guys like this. There's nobody going into the Congress and the White House explaining the science of what this is about. And they're only hearing one side and they're busy guys and they come in with these briefing books and these regulation policies and the, and the legislature already written. The, 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 the lobby was coming already written. They just give it to me. Oh, great. Thank you for doing all the work for us. And now we'll just put it in the system. And, and they make convincing arguments. So when you look at the systematic hijacking of our society, our food system, our agricultural system, and our government by the food industry is staggering. And I'll just quickly kind of lay it out. First, the lobbying. And again, it's the biggest lobby group. And just for the farm bill alone, has half a billion dollars in lobbying by the food industry. Second is the co-opting of science. They spend 12 times as much as our U.S. government and the NIH on nutrition research, which shows that, of course, Coca-Cola doesn't cause obesity, dairy is nature's perfect food, and so on and so forth, So, and that pesticides and glyphosate are fine. So the industry funds enormous amounts of study to validate their perspective and its corrupt science, which pollutes the scientific literature. Third, they co-opt the public health groups, like the American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, Academy Nutrition Dietetics, which gets 40% of its funding from the food industry. American Heart Association receives $192 million a year in funding from industry. And the recommendations are suspect. Uh, and, and according to Dr. Ioannidis from Stanford, who's reviewed all the data on this, finds that we really shouldn't be taking any public health advice from these groups that are really uh, co-opted by the industry. The next thing that happens is they provide front groups. So groups like the American Council on Science and Health, which uh, sounds like a great group, but when you look under the hood, it's funded by Monsanto, now Bayer, uh, Big Food, Big Tobacco, Pesticide Makers. And they say pesticides are fine. Tobacco doesn't cause cancer. Sugar is not a problem, you know, uh, on and on and on. GMOs are fine. So, so they really kind of corrupt public opinion. So you've got multiple sectors in society uh, from government lobbying to funding of research to co-opting of, of public health groups to co-opting of social groups to co-opting of public opinion through these front groups uh, in a coordinated strategy to literally subvert our food system to drive uh, their agenda with no regard for the downstream consequences. And if we actually had to pay for the cost of corn in this society, it would be so expensive. It would be like $100 for a can of Coke. Why? One, we do crop insurance and government supports. We help farmers grow more corn. Two, that corn growing is done in a way that pollutes the environment through the use of agrochemicals. Three, it destroys the soil which throws carbon in the atmosphere. What is the cost of climate change? And then what about the cost of the health consequences, right? That we pay for eating those foods with sugar and high fructose corn syrup. Uh, you know, that's the, the cost of Medicaid and Medicare. And we also give uh, huge amounts of money to the food industry for people to have those products through our SNAP program or food stamp program. So, so Coca-Cola is the biggest welfare recipient in America, where 20% of its profits come in America from SNAP or food stamps. And then, of course, we pay for Medicare and Medicaid on the back end. So when you look at what is the real price of, of this, we are not doing the proper accounting. And so if we really did that, it would really change the dynamic in the economy. It would incentivize, for example, practices that cause regeneration of the environment, the soil, and regenerate human health. We're going to have to buy food because we don't grow it. And so there's money to be made in us being healthy. I mean, it feels no. like it's not like we're asking these people to go out of business. We're just saying, give us food that helps the soil, 
that helps reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that helps us um, microbially flourish and and not become obese. Like, why are we stuck in the same rut when there is an opportunity to make money by making us healthy? I think it's starting to change, and I, I feel hopeful. You know, my book, Food Fix, I, I did talk about not just the problems. It's not called food apocalypse. <laughs> it's called Although, yeah. food fix. Just, just for those readers okay. who are picking it up, it, the first half of it is a food apocalypse. But tell us about the fix. <laughs> I'm seeing signs of hope, which are businesses uh, innovating, like General Mills and Danone and Nestle and other big, large food companies are funding regenerative agriculture. Why? I think it's because they're worried about their supply chain. If we keep growing the food the way we're growing, it, we are threatening our future ability to grow food. We might have to grow food in North Pole instead of North Dakota. And I think they get this long-term consequence, and they're starting to fund this. There's billions of dollars flowing into food and ag investments in regenerative agriculture. There's grassroots movements popping up all over that are moving the marketplace in the right direction. There, the government is starting to come along, and there's a whole bunch of provisions, the new Farm Bill, there's the Agricultural Resilience Act, there's there's uh, bills in, in Congress to help uh, farmers put more carbon in the soil. And ending where we began, Mark, like how do you practice, given that you started with Buddhism, you went through functional medicine, and now we're at food. Like how, how do you think in your life about food and, and how do you have that conversation with others? I, well, I love food. I love to eat. The way I have the conversation is by example. You know, I invite people over to my house. I cook amazing food. I mean, people are not suffering. It's not about deprivation or starvation or suffering. And I, I think, you know, there's a great uh, podcast I did with Karen Washington, who's an African-American woman from the Bronx who built community gardens. And she said the first time in her life, she actually went to a garden and ate a tomato off a vine and what that was like for her and how it blew her palate open and it blew her mind and it helped her understand what she was eating wasn't really food. So I think I think we, we can start to create these conversations at a very local level, as local as your kitchen. And I think cooking is one of those revolutionary acts that we don't take advantage of. And now with COVID-19, it's forced us to start to cook. And there was a beautiful article in the New York Times which showed a lot of very underserved communities in New York starting to reclaim their kitchens and learn how to cook real food and start to cook from scratch because they have to and how much better it is and how much better they feel. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we can actually begin to start to create these bridges where we reclaim, reclaim our kitchens and reclaim our homes and reclaim our food system. And, and it can be very simple. It's just, it doesn't have to be complicated. Imagine if everybody cooked at home, which we're almost doing now, what would change in the food system? And I'm, I'm kind of excited because I feel like it's the moment where, where there's enough critical mass of people talking and thinking about this that, that I think it can make a difference. So maybe tell us, talking of kind of mass movement, like you, you spend a little bit of time working with mega churches to get them to think about how to change food systems. Like how, how can we build this into a practice and how did, how did you work with them to think about this as habit building? I really had the insight when I went to work with Paul Farmer after the earthquake in Haiti, by seeing what he did with infectious disease in communities that had been neglected by the world public health community. TB and AIDS were intractable in these countries. The drugs are complicated to take. I realized that chronic disease, even though we call it non-communicable disease, is actually highly 
contagious. It's not infectious, but it's contagious. That you're more likely to be overweight if your friend's overweight than if your parents or your siblings are overweight. That it's the behaviors that we get from our network that are really driving this. And I began to realize that, wow, if obesity and chronic disease were contagious, maybe health is too. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I decided to work with this guy, Rick Warren, at Saddleback Church, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, to create a program for healthy living within their churches, because they had a very unique model. They had 30,000 people, but it was 5,000 small groups that lived together and support each other and helped each other live better lives. But they weren't focused on health. They were having pancake breakfasts and ice cream socials, and they'd have rib cook-offs in the morning to get the men to come for breakfast. <laughs> and, and we implemented this program, and we thought a few hundred people would show up. 15,000 people signed up the first week. We, we had them lose a quarter million pounds by supporting each other. And there was no doctor involved. They did it themselves. They supported themselves. They held each other accountable. They, they had, you know, jogging for Jesus and, you know, things like that. And it was, it was really awesome to see that these power of community was, was so great. And we've now scaled this at Cleveland Clinic in our Functioning for Life programs where we're using the same model with groups. And we're seeing almost a threefold improvement over one-on-one -on -one doctor visits and health outcomes. And it's scalable through, through the community, which is, I think, something we really need to think about. So the solution is really, I would say, food is medicine and love is medicine. <laughs> it's those two things. A huge thank you to Dr. Mark Hyman for talking with Podship Earth today. It's so exciting to learn from Mark because he looked beyond the artificial obstacles of current practices and thinking. Rather than tackling symptoms, Mark is uncovering the fundamental ways to fix the system. Here are the big things I took away from the conversation with Mark. One, focus on doing what you love and then continue to change so that you keep loving what you do. Two, examine the things that disturb the balance in your own system. Three, only by understanding the science of creating health can we move away from our 19th century preoccupation with treating symptoms. Four, don't wait for something serious to happen before taking your health seriously. Five, structural racism is deeply embedded in our food systems and health outcomes. Six, 60% of our calories come from ultra-processed food. Seven, one-third of the federal discretionary budget goes to covering the cost of chronic diseases, primarily caused by food. Eight, move over oil, gas, and tobacco. The food lobby is the biggest spender in D.C. Don't be fooled by the propaganda. Make informed decisions about your own health. Nine, your diet is the single most important factor in your health, the health of your community and the planet. And 10, remember that food is medicine and medicine is love. If, like me, you can't get enough of Mark's wisdom and big-picture view of the world, check out his awesome podcast, The Doctor's Pharmacy. Pharmacy is spelled F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. And his new book, Food Fix, is a must if you want to explore the issues we discussed today in more depth. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. Please share Podship Earth with a friend so we can continue to spread the word. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, maybe make a delicious soup to help warm your soul. My favorite is watercress. Have a fabulous week.